Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Building Public Podcast. I'm your host, KP, and I am super thrilled today to invite Yohei Nikojima. Did I, did I butcher it? Nakajima. You want to try again? Nakajima, no! But um, for, for folks <laughs> who are just listening, we practiced this a couple of times before, so I have no excuse. But I was also remarking how that, you know, his last name is, is Japanese, and then it's seemingly easier than some of the Indian last names that I had to pronounce on the podcast coming from an Indian. So it's funny. But hey, welcome to the show, man. I appreciate you having been here. Excited to be here. So for folks who may not know about you, I'll let you introduce yourself in a second, maybe like in a 30, 40, 50 second intro, but I want to share sort of my framing of you and I'll, I'll see... Oh, that's correct great. me if I'm wrong, far off. It's not a hyperbole to say you're probably the most, the most I would say as, as an investor who has such a strong builder side of you know, himself or herself. Like, I love how big you're into building stuff, side projects, tinkering. And that's kind of how I discovered your profile, I think, you know, many months ago. And the other side of you, which is also my favorite, is that you tinker in public, you build in public. You do a lot of these experiments, uh, side projects, explore your curiosity in public, which is amazing. A lot of investors, I think, are too thin-skinned to, you know, like show their learning process, like mm-hmm. open the garage door and kind of show like, hey, these things are not perfect yet. And I, and I love that you have the sense of openness to do that. But also, I have to wonder, um, it will definitely keep you really up to date with the trends and the and the edge cases and all these new things that are bursting out. But so anyway, th- that's my framing. Thank um, you. I loved your energy. I love the build energy that you have on Twitter. And I couldn't wait to chat with you. So yeah, I'm excited to be here and then tell you more. Um, yeah, so start so with a quick you want to start with a quick intro? Please do. And tell us a little bit about Untapped as well. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll start with, you know, kind of go back. I've been working with startups for about 15 years. Wow. Initially on the community side, my first mm. kind of foray into the startup ecosystem was Startup Weekend. And I do think wow. that like that energy has like stayed with me. Like huge fan. I became an organizer. But after what was a this? Of, this was, was in LA. So I was really LA, active yeah. in the LA ecosystem starting around 2010. There was one right. co-working space, one event a week. I had worked on my own startup right before that and made... The biggest mistake I made, I made every mistake, but every biggest mistake was not surrounding myself with other people who were also founders. Right. And so when I went to my first startup weekend, the energy of like, oh, I shouldn't have been doing this alone in my garage. Mm-hmm. I should have been talking to other people and learning from them. Like really clicked. So I leaned in heavily on becoming an LA community guy. I was setting up meetups. I was organizing events. You know, eventually started working at a couple of co-working spaces, running kind of programming for founders. And that's when Techstars came out to LA to spin up the Disney Accelerator. And I got connected to Cody, the managing director. Right. Um, then we got along. I was lucky enough to join his team. So I got to start investing into startups. And my first foray was sitting in a room with Disney executives judging media startups. Fascinating wow. experience. Wow. And after uh, helping spin that program up, I moved to a more central role within Techstars as the first director of pipeline. So I was running top of funnel sourcing. I leaned in heavily on outbound as my mm. like thing to do. So I was right. building, you know, I was researching tons of companies and building short lists of companies that I thought each program should reach out to. So that was mm-hmm. an incredible role, really fun. At that point, I knew I wanted to start a venture fund. Like I liked supporting founders in that role. And how long were you with that previous stint with the tech stars? So it was about two years as a director of pipeline. So two years of just looking for companies, sharing with investors, getting a feedback loop, and just like nothing but sourcing for two years. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I knew I wanted to start a venture fund. I'd connected with uh, Talk, the GP of Scrum Ventures, when he came through the Disney Accelerator. And so I reached out to him. He raises capital. Now they raise capital from Japan. I speak Japanese. I thought it might be a good place for me to learn about running venture. He was just spinning up an innovation consulting arm with the first client Nintendo. So it was kind of the perfect place for me to step in. 
because of right. the background Disney. So I was able to come in, help build up that consulting arm while kind of learning the ropes of venture. Mm. And then at some point, you know, as all founders do, I kept thinking about it. When I do start a fund, what would the thesis be? Who would my partner be? And, you know, after many iterations, one of them just stuck and I couldn't stop thinking about it. And this was this idea of a pre-seed venture fund that primarily sources through outbound. Yeah. I was about to comment earlier that, you know, I was at OnDeck, as you know, and I was, you know, I, I've mm -hmm. been behind the scenes with ODX, the accelerator there. And I've, one of the surprising things that I've noticed is that, you know, a lot of VC funds kind of overlook the power of outbound. And because mm -hmm. I think there's a sense of of like it's dirty work or it's grind it's like oh we have such great brand they should come to us but i think it's kind of like the same way a lot of founders think about customers like oh yeah my product is so great mm -hmm. you should come to us and, and but you know people know that that's not how it works right like they have the leverage like in this case I mean, founders have leverage in their defense it does work but the only I mean, thing is, if, 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 every, strategy, if, right? if everybody yeah. does it, it, beca yeah. it becomes, it's not an advantage. Right. right? <laughs> Unless yeah. you're really, like, yeah. literally like Sequoia, probably not a good strategy, you know. But anyway, so go, go, finish that thought. So you then start, you wanted to start a pre-seed fund, and that's like a very unique wrinkle. And you thought, I'm going to focus this on outbound as a strategy. And it's intentionally. Call it out there, right? It's like, I'm yep. sure it was part of the thesis, like part of the yeah. structure. Well, the, the thesis evolved over time. Yeah, yeah. We, we naturally, you know, we realized just doing outbound was the how, but we really needed the why, right? Yeah. And, and yeah, after yeah, talking yeah. to mentors and kind of going through what, you know, what I call my version of mentor madness, where you talk to a hundred people about an idea, I, I settled on this idea of like, we, we can find founders that other VCs can't because mm. we're doing outbound. Yeah. And so the whole thesis is around the fact that too many VCs are looking at the same startups, you know, due to the culture of, you know, referrals and allocation chasing, right. which leaves a huge gap in great founders who just don't have an existing network. Right. And so that's our target. And because they're not in our network, by definition, we re primarily source through outbound. Right. Do you have another investor with you on the fund? Yeah, I work with uh, Jessica, um, Jessica Jackley. She's uh, pretty well known for starting Kiva, the oh. microfinance site. No way! Um, what? But she's uh, she's worked with uh, nice. you know a collaborative fund. She's she's been a serial founder. Um, incredible to work with. Over nice. And, with she, and you're in Seattle, correct? She, yeah. she there too, or oh, she's down in LA. LA, yeah. Yep. Very cool. Shout out to Jessica because I, I love Kiva. I love it. I'm a user. I love it. I constantly give it's such a great great platform, you know, it for is. being able to help somebody who needs your help in through microloans. So I actually when you mentioned the pipeline thing, yo, hey, I had a question that I wonder how much of what you did there in those two years, you know, do you think what were some subconscious lessons you picked up there apart from outbound should be a strategy? Like what are some of the nuanced lessons you picked up there that you currently you think are bringing to uh, untapped right now? I'll bucket it into two categories. There's learning around how to do outbound and then there's learning around building because I think that's, mm -hmm. that's that'll be a good transition. I'll start with the outbound piece. One, you know, I'm a big proponent of the investment decision maker being part of the outbound process. I've just seen too many times where associates will reach out to, you know, someone junior will reach out to a founder, talk to them for 30 minutes, you know, take notes, show it to a GP who looks at it and five seconds go, oh, we wouldn't invest in that. Mm. And I feel like that, that happens too much. And that's a mm. lot of time wasted. If the GP was willing to even just review the list before they reached out, at least right. initially, to kind right. of train them on what to look for, I think a lot less time would be wasted. So that's something philosophically I think is important. What would make the GP not be interested in like, being part of the outbound is it just a pure lack of time at that scale like at that you know if you're doing I mean, it's, it's more convenient to say hey you know you look at a whole bunch of companies you go talk to a whole bunch and just present your favorite to me and it mm -hmm. makes sense like it's it's much less work for the gp right 
Right. But, you know, in my experience, when I look at a list, I'm reaching out to less than one in a hundred. I just don't see how somebody else that I just recently brought onto my fund would be reaching out to the same one in a hundred on a consistent mm. basis. Mm. I just don't so see much that about as a it is, yeah. is a combination of taste and intuition, yep. you know, correct? And yep. How would you, well, I know it's hard to describe in words, like paint a picture of, if I gave you a list of 100 companies, what, give me like a sense of like, how would you gravitate towards the two or three that you would eventually? That's a good question. What goes I through think, your mind? Well, one of the aspects of doing outbound, it is a grind. I have to have a big top of funnel because there's a lot more noise. Right. So I'm looking at, you know, I love sitting down and just looking at a list of 200 companies. Like I enjoy it. And that's, I guess, yeah. why I decided to do it. Other people don't. I enjoy it. That should be my But what are you, give, give us a workflow. Like what are you looking at? My workflow is super process oriented. And, and, and when I actually started the fund, I knew from the day one that I was going to build my own CRM. Mm, so wow. we, we run our whole fund on a no-code CRM. And I've, I've you know, posted templates and whatnot. So I bucket my work. So I have a hunting mode, which is when I'm looking at lists of companies. Or sometimes I'll find it on Twitter, product hunt. Um, someone will send me a list of the recent graduates. It's an event. When I'm hunt, in hunt mode, I have a rule that I don't type. It's wow. a weird rule, but mm. I only click through. And the reason I do that is just based on my experience. If I start typing and researching, I go down a rabbit hole. Mm. But if I limit myself to clicking before I decide if I want to save it into my CRM, it just allows me to get to the list faster. I use Pocket as my bookmarking tool. Yeah. When I save a company on Pocket, either on my phone or computer, it kicks off a app that drops it as an organization in our CRM. It adds it to my outbound pipeline as new which means like there's a to-do action there. Right. And then I have a separate zap that does, you know, that pings the Crunchbase API, pulls in a whole bunch of data, fills it out for me. And I'm building mm-hmm. in much more kind of enrichment APIs on top of that. So that's my hunting bucket. And then my next bucket is review. When mm-hmm. I sit down and go through new companies that I've queued up for me to review. At that point, all I'm doing is scoring one through four and bucketing it into one of three buckets, which is... And this score is a conviction score? Like how... It's a gut score. One mm-hmm. through four. Four is like... Like, this is priority. I want to reach out. Three is like, I'll probably reach out. Two is like, probably not. One is like, why did I add this? So it's pretty straightforward. <laughs> so most of them are in the three or two category. Mm. And I go through that. I tag all my companies. So then what I have is this queue of interesting companies that I think I might want to reach out to. And then the third bucket is outreach, which is if I have time on my calendar and I have money and capital in our fund, and then I will just go to my queue. I'll look at some companies and reach out. Right. So for a company, let's say that's now based out of Cincinnati, Ohio, right? Which the founders don't have a network mm-hmm. in this scenario. I mean, like maybe they were not X Stripe or X, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. This would be one of your hundred companies in the list in the hunt mode. What would stick out to you, or what are some signals you look for as a, as an investor, you know, to kind of say, oh. okay, this could be an interesting company. Are you already looking at the deck at that point, or you're just saying like? No, I'm just looking at the profiles, I don't have the websites. link. I mean, I usually just have the link. Yeah. So uh, it's hard to say. It's really a gut instinct. Like at the top of the funnel, it is instinct, right? I'm just flying through. But, yeah. you know, one is kind of, have I seen it a lot before? I mean, mm-hmm. I'd say like 60% of the, you know, maybe even 70% of the companies I see, I've seen 12 versions of it before. Mm-hmm. So that's less exciting for me. So I do, because I'm looking at, you know, I think I look at more companies than most GPs. Most people, yeah. I have a pattern recognition around like, oh, this mm-hmm. has been tackled a lot. And of course mm-hmm. there's biases for better or for worse. Right. Um, so I when you mean by this, you've toward, seen patterns, yeah. you see, you're saying like basically like a problem that was attacked before, kind of like, you know, I keep hearing everybody on Twitter once, once like request for startup is like personal CRM, personal CRM, personal CRM, yeah. but like there's 18 startups that started that and failed, yes. right? So that would be like for you, oh yeah, I see this. Yep. Definitely that. Yeah. Or it's a space that I'm just 
you know, truly passionate about. And I look at mm-hmm. it and go, this is something I care about. You know, a good example is um, we just announced a company called PulseAid. They just got into Techstars New York, their healthcare company, doing some interesting things, unbundling primary care from insurance. So basically mm-hmm. making primary care a subscription unlimited service that employers can offer employees. Wow. Um, that one really clicks for me because, you know, U.S. healthcare cost is yeah. something that's just like something that does matter. You know, that yeah, yeah. bothers me. And I think, you know, I've always thought insurance has, you know, is slightly broken. They have but, a lot but of I power. But I think in scenario, can they pull it off? Like, I feel like, it's, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be challenging, but, you know, right. but that's, but they're that's giving where, a shot. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think they've, they've approached it in the right way. And so I'm excited about it, but that's an example of when I saw the company, it immediately reminded me of like a problem in the world that I am truly passionate about. Mm. And so I reached out, talked to them and I really liked the way they kind of had planned mm. out their strategy. Interesting. I love that. Let's, let's talk about some of the side projects. And, and I know you, I remember I'm trying to recall the first time I heard about one of your side projects, I think it was something with software. Yep. Um, was it the CRM? I can't remember what it was, but you, it could you be. Was, it went viral for a while. Like for it was pretty big, and you know I invest in software. So Mariam, like I think I remember I follow her on Twitter. So I think she was sharing it, or the software account was sharing it, and then like I checked it out. So I want to hear about how that came about. What was your intention there? So I mean, I've always been like a hacker, but I've never been a developer. Yeah, yeah. So no like was always too. kind of, right? Like, yeah. you know, I, when I started my fund, actually, initially, I tried to code my own CRM, like yeah. it was in PHP MySQL, and I quickly realized that was not the right use of my time. Right. So I switched to Airtable, I lost some functionality, but like, I could move a lot faster. Yeah. Right? Don't you wish you would invest in Airtable, though? Like, isn't that, yeah. yeah. Isn't that I, such I, a great tool? I, 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 actually, I actually emailed, wasn't it Howie? Um, like, pretty early yeah. on, when I was still at Techstars, but he was too late for Techstars at that yeah. point, but I do remember Probably it um, too big. Yeah. a while yeah. ago, but yeah, you know, we had already built our fund on Airtable. I knew I wanted a front end, like, you know, LP portal, founder portal to start building. So I kind of looked around at tools. I tried Webflow, Bubble, Stacker, Softer, and Softer just clicked for me. I think it was just a personal preference. I actually yeah. really liked Stacker. At that time, they weren't as good at building non-CRUD interfaces. Yeah. It was mostly focused on, and the software had that. You could build your homepage. Right. So the first thing I did was just build our website on top of software for for a fund and then tied the data back to our Airtable and then built our LP portal, which I live tweeted my build. And I think that was one of the first things that you probably saw. Yeah. Yeah. I just opened up Twitter and as I like built it, I just tweeted. Yeah. I think I remember every one hour or 30 minutes, you would like have an update on that thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's fun to live tweet builds. Right. Because you get like people get to see like even the mistakes you made, and I think yeah. it's just fun learning. So, Your so that was making, yeah, yeah, exactly. So yeah, that was uh, the LP portal, and actually, what was great was that I had a couple of VCs reach out and say, "Hey, I built our LP portal using your tutorial." Nice, wow. And that was really motivating. And I think that's, you know, every time someone does that, it incentivizes me to keep doing it, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's so dope. And that was, I think, the beginning of the journey for you as a builder for like the VC use case, right? Like, I mean, there's so many you know, other minor things that can fall yeah. in the bucket. What else have you built that you want to share with the, with the well, folks here? I'll, I'll actually even go back further. Actually, at Techstars, as a director of Pipeline, I had actually built a pretty cool Google Sheets. I was managing, well, doing outbound for 30 programs. So mm-hmm. I built this Google Sheet full of Google Sheet scripts. I had a master sheet and I could just wow. add companies to it and tag the programs that would be a fit. It would auto-populate their unique sheet with companies that they thought might be a fit and they could say yes or no. If they said no, that company got removed from the list and went to the next matched program. If they said yes, it asked them which template they wanted to use. And I had asked them these to give me email, cold email templates, which I added to reply.io. I connected their email directly to it. So from Google Sheet, they could say, I want to reach out to this company. I want to use template one. When they did that, it just shot an email from their email to those companies. 
That's dope. That was really how cool. How much, like, how much was Noco a part of TechStars as an organization? Well, I mean, not really. I mean, I was kind of like a one-person department, so I kind of just yeah. got to do my own thing. So I just had my own Google Sheets sheet um, that I wrote scripts into. That's interesting. Um, um, yeah. I wonder because, or, or also even maybe that at that point of time, maybe no code was not even a yeah, you know, it wasn't like as big and yeah. I'd say for Untapped, what's what's best about Untapped is like for the first time, I'm basically you know first time in a long time, I'm working for myself, so I don't have to ask permission to share. Yeah, the second I have to ask permission, I like lose the motivation to share it, and I noticed that before. So with Untapped, I'd say there's three big buckets of things we've built. You know, 2020, I built the whole fund on no code, full yeah. no code backend, and that led to investments into no code companies like obviously AI, which is you right. know, no oh, code yeah, AI. Oh yeah, I know them. Yeah. 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 So we got to invest in them. 2021, Web3. I launched my own NFT collection called Pixel Bees, community for VCs and founders. Wow. We were the first integration into a handful, probably a handful of startups. So it was a really fun way to like meet and build alongside Web3 founders. Right. We even had founders who joined our community and pivoted into Web3, one of which we invested in, a game called Pixels. So again, like build to learn and meet. And then yeah. this year, it's been, you know, deep AI, right? So yeah. Um, I'm building a ton of tools on top of, I think I've probably built, I don't know, I'd say like two dozen mini projects, but at the core, there's three types of projects. One is founder support tools. So we have, you know, VC expert, blog post writer, you know, SEO idea generator. I'm working on a job description writer, all these kind of things. Initially, we're providing to our portfolio founders. Of course, uh, just like a free tool with yeah. the intention of opening up more. We just need to strategize. Right. The second is kind of helping us do diligence in companies. Yeah. Um, so we built kind of a due diligence tool and it kind of surfaces a lot of information and, you know, now starting to tie it into like the Crunchbase API. So it's not just GPT-3, but fetching information from different sources and kind of auto-generating like a deep report that then we can dive into. So just skipping some of the basic steps of like asking somebody to go pull data from Crunchbase and like look right. for similar companies. Right. I mean, I guess those are the two. And then a the third category, I guess, is just like fun stuff that I do. A lot of it tends to be either something I want personally, or it's like a very small version of an idea I'm interested in investing in. Mm. And so anytime I post a project that I hack together in a night, I tend to get three to five founders DMing me who are building in the same space. Yeah, they're probably building a bigger, big, at a bigger yeah. scale. And yeah, like, exactly. Yeah, you know, exactly. Yeah. I mean, my, you know, mine caps out at a hundred thousand rows. <laughs> like, mine's not scalable. I know that. Right. Right. Yeah. I, I think you know, it's also as a founder. You know, if I put my founder hat on, I think it's so important to be around other investors who get it about the space, about the use case, about the problem. And I think through your bills publicly, you're signaling to them that, hey, I'm not only I'm saying that I get it, I'm actually doing it. And so, of course, I get it. And along with the limitations of what comes into this, you know, what comes with this field. I have to ask this fun question. Do you think, <laughs> do you see yourself being an investor for a long time? I feel like you have such founder energy that it is a missed opportunity if we don't find you in the arena, boxing I it out as a founder. I appreciate you saying that, but I am a founder, right? I'm founding Untapped Capital, yeah, which is right, a new right. type of venture fund that right. builds scalable products. Mm. So it's interesting how you're seeing it that way. And I just that thought alone, I think, seems to me that it's separating you from a lot of other funds, right? Thank you. Like it's not just decks huh. and spreadsheets and math and capital allocation. You know, you just have skin in the game. You know, I, um, it's, it's so much fun. I, you know, the other day I, I published, you know, a Zapier integration for GPT-3 and it honestly it took me 20 minutes to do. Yeah. And I realized like, I, you know, usually I spend my time mentoring startups and I love doing that. Yeah. But if I like carved out some of the time I'm mentoring startups into building, which I've been doing, but like building a Zapier integration for GPT-3 has significantly more impact than me yeah. sitting with one founder for 30 minutes. Yeah. 
which yeah. is pretty fascinating to think about the scale of impact I can have if I focus on building as a VC with a mentality of like mentorship or just like helping founders you know, prototype or get to a certain point. Right. So if see, the other question I have is if what are some functions that you think you can add specific value for founders? You know, if they come to you for XYZ, what is that XYZ about? Is it growth? Is it tooling? Like, what do you think you channel? I mean, I think it depends on the founder. One of the things we do is we offer, you know, weekly calls for every founder for the first few months and really just focus on building that relationship. Because again, Mm. I do think that's the most important. I just want to make sure that they feel comfortable reaching out to me at any point. But more specific, tactically, outbound is something that people ask me for help on. I mean, you know, it's basically creatively building a list of targets and figuring Mm. out the best way to reach them. And so mm. I've kind of organized, you know, have like a little talk workshop on doing, you know, outbound tools. Have you published for- this anywhere? I feel like the no, talk should, should be valuable to beyond your portfolio. You I should, I should do that. Right. I think it's a great like top of funnel lead magnet for the yeah. fund. Yeah, that's a good point. I should. You know, like, even if it's a medium article or, you know, yeah. whatever format yeah. of it doesn't matter. But I think I'm myself curious, you know, because yeah. I know enough about a lot of my strategy. Like I'm shocked at sometimes people come to me for growth and go to market. And when I sit with the founder, a lot of the times all they're thinking is content marketing because that's, that's hot right yeah. now. Right. TikTok. Let's yeah. have to partner with some influencer on TikTok or YouTube shorts because they're like, no, I don't want to do content myself. I'm like, OK, have you? And then they're like, oh, the other thing to talk about is like blogs, SEO, which I understand there's a longevity value in SEO, getting it right. But they forget outbound. It's yeah. almost never talked about. It's like, it's like so sleazy if you even bring it up. Like, have you thought about cold yeah, email and outbound and strategy? And they're like, no, 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 we're not sales led. We're PLG. I'm like, yeah, I get it. But you're missing out on a ton of low hanging fruit if you just did targeted outbound. And I would show, I, I, last week I worked with the founder where I typed with him live screen, screen sharing, four lines of outbound email. Because outbound doesn't have to be an essay. In fact, no, actually, it, it shouldn't it be, should be short. The shorter the better. <laughs> right. So literally the four lines and with like a social proof and yeah. with the demo link, that's it. And I said, put this in HubSpot, create a drip campaign and you're done. We're done. You don't have to do anything more than that. And they're like, you know, and it's so underrated. Yeah. Most founders do not appreciate. And I don't know how, I'm sorry, that's why I'm saying, I'm curious if founders even come to you or even the top of the funnel founders who are like, how do you do outbound again? Like, what's your unique take? Because that's what I'm curious about. What is your unique sort of, flavor on this so yeah i tend to do i use the tools i know if it's sales b2b crunchbase is a great tool right okay, let's what is look it at the other tool zyno zyno i don't think i don't know zyno no sorry sorry you said what uh, you, you, crunch crunchbase is the one i mentioned oh of course yeah, yeah, crunchbase. yeah. so you know I, I say you know if you're selling let's look for a company with money if they raise the series you know depending on what you're selling it, is your are you targeting people who are after series a are you targeting people like much later stage right, right. if you're targeting startups also for hiring whenever someone comes to me for hiring i tend to come up with outbound strategies like hey, let's look for a company that's, you know, two stages ahead of you and look for employees who've been there for those years. So they've been there during the company growing from 10 to 100 people. And maybe they like 10-person companies. Let's try reaching out to those people. Yeah. What do you think is the biggest hesitation founders have about outbound? Give me like a three-point answer. Three separate bullet points. One is like it it does feel icky, right? If you don't do it right. And largely because people are getting... A lot of icky yeah, people don't yeah. do it, right? It just makes it seem worse. And two, I think, yeah, I guess, I don't know if it's like a three-point answer, but one, the mentality, right? Like, I often hear like, oh, I don't want to bug the wrong people or something along those lines. But really, you know, if you've built a great product, there are people in the world who want it. So right. if you put the time into finding those people, you're doing them a favor by letting them know yeah. the product you built. Yeah. And unless you yeah. feel that way, you're not going to do outbound. Yeah, right. it's a mindset shift. Yeah, yeah. I fully agree. And yeah. like, if you feel like you're doing them a disservice by emailing them, then you're probably not targeting the right people. Right. Yeah, 
Yeah. No, I, I'm just shaking my head because I'm like, this is like my conversations with a lot of my partners that I talk to. I'm like, guys, you and you, I feel like there's also a dearth of positive examples and use cases, you know, kind of like how, you know, with no code, like a lot of people, when I got into no code, feel like they're doing it as if it's like a, they're trying to prove to the coders and developers that we can do this too. One of my success stories or like one of the narratives of my success stories, I didn't give a shit about what developers thought. I just wanted to live up to my potential, wanted to have fun for my journey. It was not about them. It was not about the bad case studies. It's about what I wanted to do and like, you know, what scratch my own itch. Kind of like all your mini projects. And that helped a lot because a lot of founders after that and a lot of you know creators are like, oh, there's also positive use cases, positive stories and all that, right? I feel like right now with Outbound, maybe this is me thinking in my head, but I feel like there's a lot of negative use cases and bad examples and poor, shitty results and outcomes. And they're like, oh, Outbound sucks. It doesn't work. I'm like, or it's just you're looking, you're wading through some crap. Yeah. So... You should put more stuff out there. I should put more stuff out there. Yes, we should. Because um, I, li- I mean, I take it for granted. You know, and I'm sure yeah. you feel this to an extent. Like I, I've pitched Mark Cuban. I've pitched Alex Soanian. I've pitched Gary V. I did a show with Gary V last week. You know how we, how we, I don't know Gary V. I just cold pitched him. And yeah. the same thing with Mark Cuban. Like I don't know him. And it's about the four or five ingredients you need to have in this cold pitch. Make sure that it's relevant to them. Make sure, all these basic things which I take for granted. I'm sure you take for granted. I think we need to publish more because I think a lot yeah. of founders are also, sleeping people, on it. Also, depending on the outbound. So I, I mean, one of the challenges of outbound, it is very like nuanced. Like the way you should do it is there's no cut and paste strategy that yeah. works for everybody. Right. But overall, I do feel like a lot of people give up too soon. Yeah. I emailed 10 people. I didn't get any responses. Like, yeah, yeah. you know, like if, I'm expecting a 1% to 2% response rate depending on the outbound I'm doing. Exactly. You're not going to get a response in 10. I think yeah. one of my bigger eye-opening moments about outbound just changed my perspective. I used to be the founder, by the way, that the reason I'm making fun of some of the founders who don't understand outbound is because I used to be one of them. So I have empathy, along with the fact that I know that it was all a limiting belief in my head. So I read this article by Paul Graham. I'm sure you've seen some version of this where he talks about how Stripe, which was $95 billion until last year, until this year with their private valuation, the first, I think, 100 to 200 users. Paul Graham talks about how the Collision Brothers recruited them they didn't get users. There's no getting users. Mm-hmm. You recruit them, which is outbound, right? What do you think yeah. about? So a lot of founders, when I mentioned that thing, and when I showed them that article, they're like, I'm sorry, like, you have to be humbler than Stripe, yeah. <laughs> right? Like, you got to be humbler than, you got to think about that because they built a $95 billion empire, but the first 100 to 200 customers came from literally, you know, reaching out, outreach, yeah. You know, and like literally physically, apparently the part of the story was physically they would go install Stripe manually into the laptops for some of these developers. And yet some of the founders that I talked to sometimes they're like, yeah, we, we went and spent six weeks on two product sprints and we completely optimized the latency, landing, you know, loading speed of this particular widget. I'm like, but have you talked to a customer yet? And they're like, yeah, we talked to them, but have you pitched them? Have you like out? Like, mm. there's, and, there's also a fear, right? Because if you don't, you don't, don't get pitch, there. if you don't pitch anybody, you can't get you, you no one says no. I think the the underlying <laughs> yeah. theme that I've seen is it's not so much that they're not technically competent or whatever. I think it's so much about it is the fear of rejection. Mm-hmm. The fear of like the customer or the recipient, in this case, it could be a customer or a VC or whatever, saying that you're not good enough for us yet. And, you know, I have no answer for that. Like, you just have to, that's just part of being an entrepreneur, right? Rejection mm-hmm. is, you know, and my only other reminder to them is usually that no matter how successful you are, people will always reject you. They're always going to be someone's going to reject you as long as you're being ambitious. So, my, my suggestion for anybody who does feel that hesitation and yeah. doesn't really know how to overcome it is to talk to more people, right? Whenever mm-hmm. I start a new project, whenever I'm even raising, you know, whenever I'm raising, whenever I'm doing something, I pick a number of people I'm going to talk to. And usually, like, I just, you know, when I started on tap, I said, I'm going to go talk to 100 mentors first mm-hmm. and I just made a list 
and I just started reaching out and I talked to 100 people. When you talk to 100 people, again, it's not everyone has those 100 easily, but if you talk to a lot of people, I always find that the way I talk about things starts to like consolidate. Like it, it yeah. starts being kind of all over the place, but like yeah. by the 30th, 50th time, it starts to become kind of unified. And then yeah. you feel more and more confident in your message because yeah. by the 70th, 80th time, it's strong. And then yeah. once you get to that point, then it's much easier to reach out to people you don't know. Right. Right. I fully agree. Yeah. So this seems like a fun period of your journey. And I want to ask a couple of questions about the fund, the creation, I mean, the capital yeah. raising, fundraising for the fund. Oh, it's so meta. How did that come about? What were your, like, what was your thinking going into it? Because, you know, you had some version of this, like you kind of should, you must have predicted how much of a grind it is or, you know, how many connections you have to make, yeah. how many meetings you have to take. But what were like, Give us a sense of what was your mind at before fundraising for Untapped. And then once you finished the journey, what were some lessons you learned from that? I put a lot of effort into just reading and learning as much as I could about starting a venture fund. Mm. And I was lucky that around the time I was starting to think about it was when a lot of content was starting to come out, right? Mm. There was a couple of blog posts from like Elizabeth, Hunter, uh, Elizabeth had like I, how many I saw you give a shout out to, yeah, that's I mean, so Elizabeth cool. Elizabeth was, was one and I, and I realized, okay, it's, it's a matter of number of meetings. And yeah. like, I, you know, and I basically thought I could build up more of a career or I just have to pick a time I'm going to raise my fund. And I basically thought, you know what? I think this is the earliest in my career I could actually raise a fund, but I think I can do it. Yeah. I gave myself a rule, which was I will talk to a thousand people in nine months. Damn. And if I don't get to a first close, I'll give up. And when, well, wait, wait. No, no, I said, I, said, I, said a, I said a thousand people in one year was the rule I gave myself. A thousand a people, one year, and was a 10 million fund? Like, what was your. 10, 10 million fund, but my goal was to get to a first close. Because if I get to a first close, I can start investing. If I can start first investing. would be how much? What, 25%? I, in, in my case, I did it at 10%. But some okay. people would say that's a little on the low side. Yeah, but, yeah, but you were kind of like safeguarding it. So yeah. if you got to a million dollars in close, I think, right? Yep. And you give yourself a year and a thousand meetings. Wow. And yeah. that was not necessarily a thousand LP meeting, just like a thousand meetings in general. Yeah. It, it, ended, could be mentors. Being, it, it could yeah, be. ended up being about like 600 meetings in nine months. Yeah. Yeah. Tell but me it more. Was, it's it was super, it's super helpful to have that, right? Because of course, when I, when I got to 300 meetings and I hadn't closed anything, I'm, you know, I've only closed a little bit. I can look at my metrics and say, okay, I'm only 30% of the way through my yeah. process. Of course, of course, I still have 70% right. of, my, of my process before I can get to a first close. So it was mentally very helpful. And I think that's something I've seen other fund managers struggle with. Is like after 300 meetings, they don't have commitments. They're like, oh, what am I doing wrong? But I'm like, you just need to set your expectations so that 300 is not that many meetings. Yeah, that's, that might be the smartest thing. I've heard about this, you know, on this topic. I know, I know this is like sort of like a distilled philosophy that Elizabeth, you know, talks yeah. about, but it's just so smart the way you've given yourself some positive constraints around this, you know? Yeah. So then you jumped into this and you went on your meetings and you talked about this mentor madness, which is a Techstars term, I know, but yeah. you went, what was that? Like, what was that for you? And why was it important for you for the fund? Well, because I know, I mean, I've seen enough Techstars companies that, you know, if you talk to a whole bunch of people, your story, you know, people, different people ask different questions and you'll start realize, you know, you'll internalize the holes in your story. And if you talk to 100 people, those holes get filled and your story becomes clear and concise. And along the way, you pick up supporters. Did you ever feel discouraged by the journey, though? Like if somebody were pushing back or somebody were like, man, like it's not a great time to raise the fund. Like, how did you overcome somebody else's opinions about what you should be doing? I mean, I know, like, no matter what you're going to do, some people are going to think it's a good idea. Some people yeah. are going to think it's a bad idea. Yeah. And I, I guess I was just comfortable with that. 
But, you know, I, I do think that... Were you hell-bent, though? Were you set before you started this that, okay, I'm going to do this. I want to be an investor. Like, I'm going to do it anyway. Yeah, I mean, I knew I wanted to start a venture fund. And when I had this idea, during the mental madness was really trying to figure out if, like, this idea of, like, a pre-seed fund that does outbound, is that really a good idea? And I needed to gut check that. And then at the end of the 100 meetings, I was like, yeah, absolutely. This is a great idea. It's, nice. you know, here's the thesis. Here's the story that seems to resonate with people. So I'm going to go and raise on it. Nice. Who were one or two mentors who stood out in that 100 mentor journey? Like for you, like who were influential beyond them knowing that they were that influential to you? I mean, there's, I mean, there's incredible. I mean, there's a big list of people, obviously, that were really helpful. And you know, I definitely got to give a shout out to Scrum Ventures, the last fund that mm-hmm. was that. Um, and Taki was very supportive of me breaking off on my own and was the first to commit saying, hey, if you're going to do your own thing, we'll come in, mm-hmm. which is incredible. Yeah. Uh, I had a couple a couple people from Techstars come in, which was also really helpful. And, you know, all the Techstars folks are, you know, they're you know, managing directors and mentors. Like they, they asked a lot of really good questions that made me really think and helped me kind of think through how I should mm-hmm. tell my story. And I mean, those two were incredible, right? Because there's two groups of people that I've worked with before. Right. So they know me well and can ask me the right questions, but also right. adds incredible credibility on my fundraise journey as I go out and say the last two places I worked, you know. Want to back me. Yeah. Want to back me, yeah. So let's touch on some of the lessons you learned from the fundraising journey. When you closed, so you, you closed the fund. I mean, did you get the full 10 million or is it halfway yeah, through? more or less. No, we, we, closed, we closed on the fund uh, this summer. Very cool. Yeah. Congrats. It's a big Thank moment. You. I don't care. It was, it was exciting. That burnt. Moment. So yeah. So reflecting back, mm-hmm. what would be your three or four big non-obvious lessons? You know, honestly, I wasn't that surprised with the process. If I'm being completely honest, like I mm-hmm. think I'd done enough research that like it was challenging, but there was not many challenges that were surprising to me. Mm-hmm. The biggest, ch- I mean, the only thing that really stands to pops to mind was a portfolio construction strategy. I started investing after I did a first close on ten percent of the fund, so my first ten checks were smaller than what I had originally planned. Mm. which is fine, right? I, mm. that, that was probably the biggest surprise, which is just mm. something I hadn't planned on. But it mm. seems very small, but it was, you know, but I think it reflects on how, I think I did do a good job of researching and setting mm. expectations for myself. I love the fact that you were, you know, I, there's this whole Buddhist thing that I subscribe to, which is mm-hmm. your happiness is inversely proportional to your expectations, yep. you know? So the higher the expectations, the less happy and miserable you feel, and the lower the expectations, the surprised and joyful and happy you feel because you're like not taking anything for granted. And I, I tend to live as close as possible to that thing. It's not always easy, you know? It's mm, very always. hard, as you probably know. Easier said than done. Easier said than done. But I feel, you know, as much as you can, if you can focus on being self-aware and like keep your mind on that thing, it's, you know, it's not that hard. Right. Yeah. But I, t- I tend to think of, I know this not to get too philosophical, I tend to think of myself in kind of three parts. There's like the physical self, and then there's the uh, emotional self, and then there's the actual self. And I like uh, to observe the emotional self as a third party and just understand how can I set that emotional self up so he yeah. acts in a way that I want it to. Similar yeah. to the way you observe your physical self and say, hey, yeah. if I buy a whole bunch of junk food, put it near me, I'm likely to eat it, and it's going to make me unhealthy. Yeah. But you can do the exact same thing for your emotions. It's just... Set it up, set up the room, the environment to yeah. help the emotional self thrive and understand the patterns that it reacts to. Right. Wow. Have you explored any, this is a, is this a stereotype if I'm asking you this dumb question like Buddhism or any, like, have you subscribed to any of those things, practiced or um, meditation? Yeah. I, I went, I've gone through my phases. I like studying the brain a lot. And uh, interestingly, there's a pretty strong community of like Buddhists who really care about the brain. Yeah. So uh, there's a couple books I read in the space that really got me into it. Do a lot of yoga. Generally interested in like spirituality and. and is there, how it is there a book you recommend? You know, the, my favorite I think in this space would be I think it's called Train Your Mind, Change Your Brain, and huh. it's a book on neuroplasticity. 
Wow. Our, our ability to change our brain through training. Right. And the forward is written by the Dalai Lama. Wow. The whole book actually follows the story of the Dalai Lama's involvement in the neuroscience community. And he even did things such as convince, you know, monks to like fly, to like get MRIs, even though they were hesitant because the Dalai Lama said that, you know, by contributing to the scientific community, they hired their value. So it was, it's just a fascinating book that was told in this, you know, in the story format around, you know, again, it's a book on neuroplasticity, but like the main characters, but almost the Dalai Lama, which was fascinating. Yeah. I see that by uh, Sharon Begley. Yep. Wow. I went on a, you know, like a, a whole period I think three, four years ago when I just went super deep into Buddhist philosophy and I spent, I think, at least 50 weekends consecutively meditating. Not the whole weekend, but like a part mm-hmm. of the weekend going to a temple. And like that was the most I think I grew as an adult, you know. Um, I went through and, a phase where yeah, I was obsessed with the idea of meditation. Yeah. But I then, you know, I think there was this TED talk about blue zones and how people who are healthy didn't like yeah. go to the gym, but they just exercised regularly. Yeah, and that inspired were... me to think of this idea called the micro meditation. Mm-hmm. So like in your day to day, everything can be a meditation almost. Yeah. It's not yeah. the core meditation where you get 100%, but like, can you be mindful of about yeah. your bike ride commute. Right. And I, yeah. Right? Like, it's, it's, what, what would happen if you treated everything you did as meditation? Yeah. Um, and I went through a phase where it was like, that's how I really treated my life. And yeah. it, was, it was a big, uh, yeah, definitely it's, a lot of personal growth. Me too. I mean, I, and I think, you know, if you go to the sort of the deeper parts of Buddhist philosophy, that's really what they're talking about is that they're saying, can you live your life day to day, ordinary stuff? Like chop wood, carry water, mm-hmm. being mindful. Now, that is the greatest embodiment of enlightenment is that you're living your life doing normal dumb shit but you're being mindful you know you're not having to sit down in a dark room to close your eyes you know it's hard i I think like i've actually struggled with the actual meditation if i have to sit down because i'm very adhd like if i have to sit down and close my eyes and like for 35 40 minutes have to focus on something it was like torture but i did it to kind of check my limits see Mm -hmm. what is my limit and i had a very tough i had a very sassy and a tough buddhist teacher and he would roast me and my my, girlfriend who's my wife now if i was not you know focusing and it was very helpful because it taught me patience and all that but eventually i realized the kind of meditation that works really well for me is where i close my eyes but i'm not trying to force myself to not think Mm -hmm. but i'm trying to like externalize the thoughts like what you said trying to like separate myself so the visual metaphor i have is that i'm slowly rising up like kind of going up onto the skyscraper and my thoughts are like the traffic you know like they're like the moving cars and i can see them they're mine Mm -hmm. but the honking doesn't bother me that much you know so there's a sense of separation yeah another uh fun one that i did a lot i did this thing that i call the color walk and i would go on a short walk around my neighborhood and Mm. i would repeat a mantra but just colors so just mm. walk around and in my mind i'm going red 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 right what's fascinating is you notice everything that's Every, red. yeah and if you switch to green you notice all the green things if you switch yeah. to yellow you notice all the yellow things and wow, it's fascinating right. if you just do it and like you can go on the same walk but like you'll notice different things if you do different colors at different spots what i liked about it is that it really internalized that what i repeat in my head is what i notice in the external yeah. world yeah. and so it incentivizes me to try to think positive thoughts so that right. i notice Positive things. Right. Right. So it, it internalizes again, like uh, trying to just understand the relationship between my mind and like how. Myself. Yeah. Dude, yeah. you know, if I met you in college, we would be best friends, man. Like you have so much of a, you would have so much of a, like we would be like so hippies and like, yeah. But yeah. Um, <laughs> I appreciate your energy. I, you know, love what you're doing. And I want to say, you know, keep being you, you know, and keep looking uh, for untapped. If there's any way I can help untapped in some way, you know, no strings attached. I would love to help. What's next for you? Like, what are you, where's your head at? 
you know, in the next 12 months, personally and professionally? I mean, I think continuing to do the work that I'm doing at Untapped, you know, finding and investing your great companies, is supporting and working with the founders that we've invested in. Are you still then, sticking in the pre-seed stage or are you expelling? Oh, sorry, like, one like question pre-seed. there. Yeah, yeah. still pre-seed? Yep. yep. One question there. I know you touched on this, but you didn't, you didn't finish, which is, did you evolve the thesis and what is it now? So. No, it's mostly the same. It's uh, it's the same thesis. We're looking for, you know, unexpected founders that we source primarily through Outbound. I'd say the new layer is that we, uh, we proactively build to learn and that's something we continuously mm. do. Mm. Um, I think proactive sourcing might be a little bit higher level where Outbound is like me saying, I want to talk to you. But also like me building tools in a space that I'm interested in and pushing that out publicly, I think is, it's, it's, it is marketing, but I like to think of it as like much more proactive marketing in terms of yeah. like, signaling to the market what I'm looking for yeah. um, through my act- action. So I'm glad we got me, that on, on the record because I think that is the unique, that is the value prop that I would assign to you guys yeah. compared to like 30 other pre-seed funds, right? Like you are doing that in a separate, in a, in a unique differentiated way that many others can't or won't. You know, yeah. so. but I mean, they can and they should, which is why I do it. Right, that, I know that's that's sort of your philosophy. You're saying like, yes, should, but yeah. So you, continuing helping founders, is there a fund to come in? Ah, I'm not. I mean, I'm not going to talk about that. I don't. Uh, yeah, we'll see about rules that. Make it, SEC rules make it hard to talk about future right. plans on the fund. Um, right. But yeah, we'll, we'll be doing. We're definitely going to be continuing to uh, grow on top as a firm. Yeah. That's awesome, man. Yeah. So great to hear that. And so great to see your progress and be Thank you. for you from the sidelines. Thank you for being on the show and uh, I'll see you soon again. Yeah, great to chat. Awesome. Thank you. Bye. Bye.